Since its beginnings in the 17th century, modern science has focused on the kind of facts that can be grasped by the senses and proven by measurement. It abandoned the religious explanation of the world which posited an unseen god behind the universe, accepted only that which it could see and touch, and brought an acute analysis to the phenomenon of the physical world. Gradually, and with increasing certainty, it came to the conclusion that the only knowledge worth knowing was the kind that could be quantified. Physical laws that could be observed and measured would, it believed, account for everything, and the belief that anything else was needed, or that anything could escape the necessities imposed by these laws, was abandoned. The results of this belief we see around us everywhere, from the computer I'm using to write this book to the probes we have sent out in space in order to explore the mysteries of the universe. To say that this kind of knowledge is good and useful is an understatement. As more than one historian has pointed out, because of it, the world has advanced more in the last few centuries than the millennia that preceded it. This knowledge is absolutely indispensable, and because of it, we today, who profit by it, live lives undreamed of by our ancestors. But is it the only kind of knowledge? The esoteric tradition says no. There is another kind of knowledge. It is not one of physical facts, nor can it be quantified or measured. It is a knowledge of our inner world, not our outer one. A knowledge of what we used to call the spirit or soul, that invisible, intangible something that animates us and leads us to ask questions about who we are and what our place in this mysterious world can be. It is essentially concerned with the meaning of our existence, a question that other kinds of knowledge cannot answer or rejects as nonsense. For our scientific kind of knowledge, the spirit and the soul are superstitions, delusions, as neither can be detected by the senses. Who has seen the soul or spirit? For the esoteric tradition, the physical world available to the senses that science affirms is the only reality is only a small part of a much greater reality, an invisible inner reality that informs the outer world and gives it life and meaning. my moth people. Welcome to Noctivigant, the show about the strange, paranormal, otherworldly, and the people who write books about it. My name is Nick, and I'm joined by the dynamic duo Jay and Rory Wicks. Hello. Hello. On this show, we are going to discuss, dissect, and review the best and worst in the world of paranormal conspiracy literature. So settle in, buckle up, and prepare for a walk on the midnight roads of Noctivigant. Let's get messy. How's it going, guys? Oh, we're doing that. Pretty good. Yeah, no, everything's going pretty good. I I read a lot of shit, and I understand <laughs> maybe 80% of it. Watching you read today's book was a delight. I, I loved the look of pain and enlightenment on your face. Like, I'm not going to lie. This book was was far beyond me in a lot of ways. Like, far beyond me in a lot of ways. But that's okay. I'm uh, I'm ready to talk about what I don't understand. <laughs> uh, speaking of what you don't understand, the topic of today's discussion of episode five is The Secret Teachers of the Western World by Gary Lockman. 
Uh, I loved this book. I thought it was fantastic. All of our listeners at home, go out and buy it so you know you can read it and join in Jay and Rory's pain. <laughs> or my elation. I mean, it really could go either way. You you can also like buy it and just like read sections. Like you No, can... you cannot do that. It's Honest, forbidden. Honestly, just don't do what Jay and I <laughs> did, which was wait till the last minute to read the whole book. <laughs> and then just fucking like go through the whole thing in a short period of time because that was a mistake. Yeah, this is a book you need to you, you need to, to chew be, on. Yeah, it needs to be in chunks for I, sure. Well, I mean, it's 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 a 500 page tome, and even then, it could have easily been a 1500 page tome because he packs so much in there. Yeah. Uh, speaking of say which, the fucking least. <laughs> so are we ready to begin? Yes. Yeah, let's get to it. Please purge this book from my mind. Okay. Uh, so. A few things up front. I'm going to do my level best to uh, pronounce some of these words that I'm going to be talking about here. Uh, I will probably get some of them wrong, but that's okay. Uh, In addition, I'd want to bring up that, again, you should read this book because there's so much in here. Writing a summary of it was actually probably the most difficult thing I've done so far for this show. So, yeah, yeah, I I can see. Yeah. Uh, So my this is going to be a bit more long winded as usual, but I'm going to try to break it up with some discussion questions. So here we go. Of the modern authors writing about the esoteric and occult, you'd be hard-pressed to find one more prolific, more insightful, or better researched than Gary Lockman. Among his arsenal of wondrous explorations of the strange, an argument can be made that his most comprehensive work on the esoteric thus far is the topic of today's discussion, The Secret Teachers of the Western World. One small aside, uh, last episode I said this came out recently. I don't know where I learned that. That's completely wrong. This came out in 2015. Yep. So this wasn't, uh, this wasn't back in April like I initially thought. This was this book was pre-COVID from an innocent time. I I don't know what to make of that statement. I don't know I don't know what's innocent about this text. Nothing. The time before COVID is innocent. Yeah. Remember remember when the four of us in this house hadn't spent a year locked in a locked in an apartment together? <laughs> Remember, yes, I remember that. I remember remember how that happened and we're now soul bonded. Yes, I, I fondly remember those times. <laughs> okay, so part history textbook, part philosophical exploration, and part hopeful message for the future, Secret Teachers details a history of the origins and evolution of esoteric thought from the first Neanderthal moon religions all the way to the psychedelic underground of the 1960s and the new age of occult consumerism, which is still prevalent today. Conceptualized as a chain of adepts stretching back to ancient times, esoteric thought has long been guarded and added upon by a long string of thinkers and luminaries who protected it against the numerous forces of science and religion that would see these practices dead and buried. But more than a dutiful ledger of those who came before, Lachman finds a new and interesting lens to study the esoteric through, being the divide between the left and right brain. In the introduction, Lachman builds off the ideas of Gene Gebser and Ian McGilchrist, whereas argued that the history of esoteric thought may best be understood as a fundamental expression of the right and left brain dichotomy. Rather than arguing for the now disproven ideas about our split brain, one being for math, one for arts, Lachman and McGilchrist argue that while left and right brains perform the same function, they do so in wildly different ways. The right brain, which seems to be the older of the two, and may in fact have come from our Neanderthal ancestors, perceives the world as a network of correspondences, intuition, and knowledge which is not learned but pulled from the self-evident truths of reality. It is this all-encompassing cosmic worldview that is then cut up into digestible bits and made manageable by the left brain. In doing so, it turns our reality into something we can comprehend, 
handle, and shape to our desires. However, as it usually goes in the tales of dynamic partnerships, treachery was on the horizon. Around the end of the Bronze Age, something happened. A shift in consciousness which Gene Gebser conceptualized as the dawn of the mental rational framework. A cognitive shift in society, away from intuitive communion with the world, and toward the development of a concept of man is somehow separate from the world. This shift gave birth to a sort of left-brain dominance that fueled the scientific age. Suddenly, we began to break the world down to its parts, began to understand the rough mechanics of how it all worked. The world was no longer a place of myths, gods, and mysterious forces beyond our control, and increasingly became a machine, an entity without spirit or purpose, run by set rules that could be understood and manipulated. In Lockman's words, the left brain went on the attack, with its chief representations, science and some mainstream religions, doing all they could to diminish or overshadow the right brain, as represented by esoteric or mystical thought. Esoteric practices, in turn, can be seen as the rebellion of the right brain, a call to reconnect with our spiritual cosmic consciousness and to remember the wisdom of the ancients. Wisdom which endured through a long chain of visionaries or perhaps within our own skulls. As Lachman so eloquently puts it, we can't get rid of the of it being the esoteric for the simple reason that it is literally part of us. If I'm correct, it has its roots there, a few millimeters across from us, next door in our right brain. Whether we like it or not, we have to make an attempt to get to know our neighbor, our other self, or suffer the consequences. So I'm, I want to stop right there because uh, already we've uh, already introduced some pretty difficult concepts to wrap yeah. your brain around. Um, yeah, lis- listeners, uh, this podcast is going to be a little bit different. Instead of doing like a summary and then discussion questions, uh, Nick is going to kind of guide us through this piece by piece, and then we're going to have discussion questions to parse out what he just uh, summarized <laughs> for us. I mean, as best as we can. Yeah. yeah. All right, so let's take a moment to discuss Lachman's thesis, being that the left and right hemispheres of the brain constitute the fundamental divide between our rational understanding of the universe and our esoteric, symbolic, intuitive understanding of it. As part of this, he details the previous mode of consciousness as one in which man was in direct communion with the universe around us. So my question is, have you ever spent time examining your own consciousness and how it works? What do you imagine life would have been like for those living under a right brain consciousness framework? And what might that indicate about our own views of reality as we all grew up in, you know, the iPad age? Um, I've I've spent a lot of time examining my own consciousness. You know, I was I was an awkward, lonely kid. I became very introspective and um, I I do. I do largely agree with with at least parts of Lockman's thesis, even if it is not 100 percent correct. I think he is on. I think that train of thought is heading in the right direction because with split brain surgery, we know that to a certain extent, the hemispheres have different wants and different aims. And it does seem like the right brain and the left brain have access to different types of information and um one thing I've I've talked with both of you about this before is the idea of do you think in third person, second person or first person and the fact that I think in a mix of both of like I tend to think of like I think we need to go to the bathroom or I tend to think in in like we's and us of just like when the fuck did we lose that or why are we spending so much money? Aren't you supposed to be in charge of that? And also something I remembered recently, um, my parents told me once that when I was first learning how to talk, I narrated everything I did in third person. 
they're like, that was how you communicated for a long time is you would speak in terms of speak in terms of Jay wants to know where Jay wants to know where the toy is or Jay wants to go outside and play things like that. Now, are you sure that you're not the right brain that something just didn't get flipped and like you're referencing your left brain self? You want to know what's really weird about that? Um, I have dyslexia. You guys both know that. Mm -hmm. Do you want to know what one of the leading theories about what causes dyslexia is? Is um, a neurological mix up that causes the different hemispheres of the brain to do the wrong jobs for each other. Fascinating. Yeah. (sighs) So it could just be a deeper form of dyslexia. That's kind of what I think it is. May po- entirely that's entirely possible. Mm-hmm. Like we dyslexia is a completely distinct neurotype and on top of that I'm autistic, which is also a distinct neurotype. So on a physical level the neurons that string my brain together are different on a chemical physical level. True. Which is interesting when we talk about this topic here. Yeah. Uh especially if you posit that one hemisphere of the brain kind of sees the forest and then the other side is supposed to chop it up into trees what happens when those signals get mixed up uh it'd be very disorienting i imagine i don't like this world i feel like i don't belong here (laughs) what about you rory um but yeah i've i've like examined my like how i think you know for multiple reasons one like thinking about it i recently you know, even before reading the book, the idea of like how I think and all that has been prevalent in my mind because I've been examining my own spirituality, right? And that comes into play when you're thinking about that. On top of that, I have a um, prevalence for weed, which <laughs> makes me think about those kind of things. Quite often. <laughs> Laying awake, crack-eyed, staring at the ceiling at 3 a.m. You know, just having an ex- existential crisis over nothing. Yeah. But no, I mean, I mean, yeah, I've, I've thought about all of that. Uh, I, I can't, I can't, I can't say that I understand even my own consciousness all that well. Uh, I think it's pretty normal. I think uh, it's normal to have conversations with yourself, right? I mean, I do, so I hope so. It's at least normal for everyone in this room. Like the way my brain works, I only have conversations with myself. Like I have a very distinct I in first person, but there is there's a whole nother voice that is much more reasonable than me that yes. gives me advice. And then we talk to each other and we figure out what we're supposed to be doing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's uh, that's kind of how it is. Yeah. Yeah. So similar to that. Which is funny because I, I couldn't stop when after I read this, I couldn't stop thinking about this. Like, is that what that other voice is? Is that's the right brain being like, hold on, idiot. <laughs> Don't go running ahead. You got to see the forest here. Now, as for the I guess the, the, the second part of your question, what do I imagine that life is like for the right brainers? Fuck, how would I know? I mean, that, that's a good point, because if we assume that the I when we think, you know, I, Nick, if we think that that is the left brain self. The other, the other side of us is a complete stranger. It'd be very difficult to think about what its experience is. But I think what I wanted to get here was not what its experience is. It's more, what do you think it was like to live in a world where the right brain was the dominant guiding force? And I, Lachman brings up a pretty, what I thought was a pretty interesting idea of what if people around that time heard, you know, that other voice, that right brain voice, but they didn't hear it as themselves. They heard, thought it was the guidance of God or maybe the word of God. So it would become less important to say, you know, 
hey, I, I'm going to decide where I'm going to go fish. No, I'm going to wait for God to tell me where the fish are. You know what that's make? You know what that's making me think of weirdly? Demon of Brownsville Road and Connie Valenti, who said that it took her a long time to realize that she was special in the eyes of the church because she said, I thought everyone talked to God and that she was like, I hear God's voice in my head all day, every day. God tells me all sorts of things. It's like, does Connie Valenti, was she just born tapped into her right brain in a way that we haven't seen in tens of thousands of years? I mean, it's possible. I mean, potentially. And I would say, not tens of thousands of years, I would argue that many of the secret teachers we're going to talk about today probably were born tapped in. That would make sense. I mean, uh, I mean that, that that's fair. That's fair. So speaking of secret teachers, before we continue, I want to give a real quick definition of what that actually means. Awesome. Because uh, Lachman kind of coins the term. Granted, of course, it's it is in my mind, a little synonymous with the secret chiefs, the hidden masters that we see in a lot of secret schools and cults and things like that. It's just another word for that. Well, I I think what I think the difference here is that in his conceptualization, these are very real people. And what makes them secret teachers is that the knowledge that they uh, carried forth, that they added to, isn't something that we can see out in the world. It's an entirely hidden within the inner realms. It's something that is almost a psychological process that you embark upon. And, and so that it is by its nature hidden just within ourselves. I don't I don't <clears throat> excuse me. I don't remember. Does he actually explain what he means by secret teachers? Or does he just say it repeatedly throughout the book? Um, he I, I don't know if he ever like sits down and says, here's the definition. But uh, because the way I looked at it was um, that all these teachers were effectively teaching some version of the same thing. But they even they themselves didn't know the higher didn't necessarily understand the higher, the greater meaning of what it is that they were teaching. I mean, it's possible, and I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, because that actually brings us to chapter one. <laughs> I'm, first, go, I'm good at uh, transitions. Yeah. The first chapter, Ancient Wisdom, goes into what I'd call prehistory and suggests the existence of a sort of precursor philosophy or culture which informed every other society that came after it, as evident by the many ancient structures whose design employs methods of mathematics thought to be unavailable to ancient people. He goes on to imply that this may be due to a previous mode of consciousness that we as a species lived in, a right-brain-dominant mode in which we can intuit complex wisdom from the universe itself. Whatever the reason, it was this supposedly hidden wisdom which would later spark the rise of philosophy, whose earliest practitioners concerned themselves with finding the, quote, perennial philosophy, or the core principle to explain all of reality, as detailed in Chapter 2, Out of the Mysteries. In a sense, even our earliest known philosophers were already concerned with reclaiming something that had been lost in the shift towards the left-brain world. It is here we meet our first and perhaps most important secret teacher, Plato, who conceived of a world of truths hidden beside or within our own, his world of forms, from which he suggested all of reality emanated. In Chapter 3, The Secret Gnosis, Plato's ideas barely survived the rise of the more analytical Aristotle, finding sanctuary inside the rise of Gnostic Christianity. Believing that the world was ruled by an evil craftsman god, the Gnostics sought to, through an inward journey, peel back the trappings of physical reality and uncover their connections to the true godhead, who, they argued, existed entirely beyond this physical world. This journey back to source through an inward journey would become a mainstay of esoteric thought and would influence much of what came after. In chapter 4, From the One to the One, 
we see how esoteric thought found a safe home in the fabled city of Alexandria, where hermetic, neoplatonic, Gnostic, alchemical, theurgic, and other esoteric practices came together to form one of the most eclectic and enlightened populations in history and the place I'd want to buy a timeshare in if I could. Core to many of these beliefs was the idea of gnosis from the Gnostics, meaning an inward transformation of consciousness. Nearly all Western esoteric traditions share common ground in this concept, that truth is found in transforming oneself, usually conceptualized as a series of planets or levels or veils which separate the Godhead from our physical reality and which can only be traversed within our own minds. Which brings us to discussion question number two. Why do you think so many ancient philosophies and magical practices shared this concept of a celestial ladder, which bridges the divide between the material realm and the source or godhead? Does it indicate signs of a true perennial philosophy or primal theology from which all religions spawned? A truth about our consciousness, more or less? So... I had so when I I was excited to see that discussion question when you sent us the preview of them and this is this is based on nothing this is just my romantic conjecture of where that may have come from we are primates at the very very heart of our primates at our at the very core of what we are we are primates and one of the things primates are better at than anything else in the world is climbing and climbing was the thing we had over so many of the things that wanted to fucking eat us. Like, you want to know the actual evolutionary psychologist, evolutionary psych reason why the horror movie protagonist always runs up, even though that means they're going to get stranded in the upper floors? Because of the primal instinct to climb. Higher is safer, and we have never stopped that. And I'm just wondering if that celestial ladder is just the longing genetic memory of the first time we climbed all the way to the top of our tallest, tallest trees and still couldn't reach the big pretty thing in the sky. I mean, that's that's an interesting idea. Yeah, it almost feels like kind of a root, instead of a primal theology, almost like a a primal psychology, a sort of like th- these are the base instincts that were coded into us from prehistory. And before the division between left and right brain, what would the difference have been? I mean, true. It's, it's a good point. I yeah. mean, uh, especially because if you if there was no division between left and right brain, in theory, if you know, assuming you still had both, I mean, I don't really know what that would look like because I mean, the argument is made that the right brain, uh came first that that was the first mode of consciousness that we developed and that the left brain we might you know it might have come from the cro-magnum well the right brain might have come from neanderthal and when they got together it uh it made an ape with anxiety yeah we have a lot of anxiety but yeah and i'm and it's possible that again if just again romantic conjecture if we climbed to the tall the top of the tallest tree we couldn't reach the big pretty thing in the sky and we'd started developing like something like language and maybe we started telling stories about the big pretty thing in the sky and how someday someday we were going to reach it and we were going to find out if it was made of food <laughs> Um, I don't, I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily know, right? Uh, <laughs> like, that's the truth. I, I don't. But what I can say is, um, I think that there is something to be said about the fact that no matter where you go, like, if, for example, if we go to like a third world country that's never 
seen a white man. It's never seen us, right? Mm -hmm. They typically have some form of religion. Sure. Yeah. And there's got to be a reason for that. I mean, the only thing I can think about is that, I mean, like I I remember a long, long time ago, I don't remember any of the details of this book because I I remember most of it was bullshit, but the idea, the, the title of the book always stuck with me because it seems right. And it's called the God complex. It's like within us, everybody believes in something, right? There's all that. It's like, uh, I remember when I was, uh, when I was first getting in or first going to like evangelical churches and whatnot, they would always describe like you're, you know, you, the feeling that you're always missing something and you know, that something is God. And I think there's something to that. I don't necessarily know if the answer is God, but like not for everybody, but I think that there's a, that there's truth to be said there about the idea of a greater consciousness because we're all effectively tapping into the same thing. If you look at all of the other, if you look at even some of the secret teachers throughout the book, there are people from, you know, one side of the world to the other that come up with very similar ideologies that, you know, and they didn't necessarily learn under the same people. Mm-hmm. And that's fascinating to me because that that means that there has to be something that they're like to me that says there has to be something that they're tapping into that's giving them or letting them think that way. I mean, I, I think there is something to that. I think this whole idea of the inward journey or the celestial ladder within the self that there are levels of consciousness that separate the physical reality from God, from source, from whatever you want to call it, that initial emanation of thought. And that that idea comes up over and over again. And what we're actually going to see and something I found mind boggling in this book is like uh, like Rory was saying, a lot of these secret teachers, when they had their grand mystical inward journey, if you strip away the religious imagery from it, if you strip away their own contextualized beliefs, they're describing basically the same place, the yes. same steps, the yep. same end goal, it, despite being in completely different cultures and different backgrounds and ethnicities, languages. I And that that has to mean something. I, I think it has to. Um, Absolutely. And, you know, that's funny. That's kind of what I was about. Uh, one of the other things that I wanted to say was it's like... Um, with the Gnostic faith and seeking Gnosis, it's very similar to seeking Nirvana. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. You know, it's very, yes. very, very similar. And that blew my mind. Yeah. Because there is no connection between Buddhism and Gnostic Christianity. There is there is actually a theory by some ancient Christian scholars that they think that Jesus and the, it, this is unlikely just because it would have taken him so long to get there and it would there's also the question of how did he even get there? Some people because of that connection are very insistent that it's like Jesus went to India and he studied with the and he studied with the mystic masters of Buddhism and Hinduism and obviously we have no evidence to support that but it's also possible that it just developed completely independently of each other due to like you said that almost primal source of what makes humans look at the big pretty thing in the sky arguably you we could we could make the argument that jesus was born to a greater consciousness yeah yeah you know and so he tapped into he was able to tap into that idea uh to seek gnosis or whatever you want to call it and he was able to do that naturally. 
just because of who he was. Um, one he th- might have been right-brained. Yeah, yeah, he might have been. One other idea that occurs to me also is you often hear associated with these, you know, quote, higher frequency consciousness individuals. Uh, that's where you get into stuff like ESP and telepathy and remote viewing. Mm-hmm. And if, you know, we're, we're saying, well, maybe a lot of our religious figures like Christ or Muhammad or such, maybe they were born more connected to the cosmic consciousness. Maybe he didn't need to travel to India in body. Maybe he projected as a spirit there. Maybe True. astral projection. Maybe one of the the Buddhist masters there came and found him uh, astrally. Like hell, we, maybe Jesus was meditating and Buddha himself was like, "Hey, dude, you want yeah. a lecture?" Well, I mean, <laughs> what up, though? Because we we look at <laughs> well, well, because we see this coming up over and over again in this book, uh, as well as you know, the more you read about the Western esoteric traditions, that this physical reality, the limitations of distance of space of time are ultimately illusions we impose upon it these are and if you could move higher you might be able to ignore them you might be able to get around them somehow um which is obviously fascinating um one other thought that i had while reading this and this is i'm gonna put my tinfoil cap back on um i it actually made me think about aliens and the reason is (laughs) of course it did of course it did (laughs) no the reason is is uh so there's this book called the law of one uh, which supposedly documents the lessons imparted upon us by an alien named Ra who uh, spoke through a channeler. And a couple of people wrote down everything he said and came out as a book. And we're going to cover that book because it's fascinating. Um, but in that, it, there's this concept of, you know, at the end, at the true source of the universe, we are all one. And that's not even just saying, hey, we are all emanation, you know, because we're all emanations of the same consciousness. We're all the same entity. To hurt any living thing is to hurt yourself. We've seen that a lot in Eastern philosophy. Um, but what the point being is that's not even just living things. Everything is an emanation of consciousness. So we see even inanimate objects are are part of this. Um, and we've seen that, again, come up through these alien entities, through these channelers. And so what I couldn't stop thinking about is, it, I couldn't stop thinking about the weird overlaps between uh, kind of the woo-woo side of the UFO phenomenon and the esoteric phenomenon. I think once you get to a certain point, the words like esoteric, occult, alien, it, it all is basically expressing the same thing when you get down to it because the experience uh, experiences reported by ancient esotericists, occultists, especially those who said they communed with uh, outsider spirits and the like, in modern context, they sound a lot like talking to aliens. How many decades do you think it's going to be before John Keel is considered a secret teacher? I consider him one now. Okay. I was, was going to say, I kind of I kind of see John Keel as a secret teacher. If not a secret teacher, he's a secret adjunct. Yeah. A secret substitute. <laughs> yeah. He would fucking hate being labeled a secret teacher. He would just, no, this is nonsense. You're feeding the phenomenon. <laughs> you shouldn't believe in anything, ever. <laughs> you know what you should believe in? This gun and that he uses, <laughs> that he uses to shoot injured Cole at point blank range. I, I don't think he'd shoot injured Cole. I think he'd shoot Woody Derenberger. <laughs> 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 okay, so let's keep on moving into chapter five. Jesus Christ, you guys. Just as the right brain was getting cozy in Alexandria, the left rational world went on the attack. Chapter 5, The Great Pan is Dead, follows the death of paganism, brought on by increasingly violent Christian sects who sought to purge the heresies of esoteric thought, much of which took the power of salvation out of God's hands and placed it in man's ability to save themselves. 
And as the West descended into the black of the Dark Ages, esoteric thought made a run for it to the East, spurning the golden age of Islamic thought. Swelled by ideas brought from those fleeing Alexandria, the city of Haran in northern Mesopotamia became yet another fortress for right-brain cosmic thought. It is from this mixing of ideas that we got another important secret teacher, Sir Rawardi, I think I pronounced that right, who first conceptualized the idea of an imaginal world, being an inner world that was as real and objective as our physical reality, a place between here and Plato's world of forms and to where we go when we sleep. It is through here, he argued, that one could climb the celestial ladder and return to the fabled source, the perennial philosophy. An adventure he went on himself, climbing through that imaginal realm until he reached its end, a convex mirror inside which was the universe. The Golden Age, however, would not last, as fundamentalist authoritarian religion again rose to purge the land of its luminaries. Chapter 6, Spiritual Love in the Western World, covers the tragic last stand of the Gnostic faith before it was wiped out by the patristic church in a horrifyingly bloody crusade, and the ensuing movement underground of esoteric thought. Irenaeus! Yeah, I, I have a quote here that I, I fucking love, and I don't remember the guy's name, because uh, I didn't write down, but he was the... He was the one who led the crusade that basically slaughtered the last 20,000 Gnostics, a uh, big slaughter of a city. And he, his quote was, when they approached the city, his soldiers said, well, how do we tell the Gnostics from the not? And his response was, kill them all. God will know his own. And while the man is a monster, I gotta applaud style. I'm, I'm not gonna applaud that. Yeah, that's fair. I, I, I don't think there is a statute of limitations on when 20,000 dead people becomes funny. Also, like, here's the thing. He's, they, they ended an entire faith that, in my opinion, is more accurate than the one they were representing. I mean, that, that's, that's fair. During the Dark Ages, troubadours, artists, and thinkers began to hide their ideas in allegory, and love poetry at the time became metaphor for the seeking of the divine feminine that was lost with the death of the Gnostics. It is also here that we discuss Dante, whom, the author argues, hid his own esoteric inward journey in the Divine Comedy, conceptualizing his long march through hell, purgatory, and heaven as just another reskinned celestial ladder, with many parallels drawn between his experience and Sir Rewardy, giving credence to the concept of an objective inner reality, just disguised and dressed in the spiritual imagery familiar to the one perceiving it. Chapter 7, An Esoteric Renaissance, details the end of the Dark Ages and the return of esoteric thought through the old Greek and Roman texts preserved by Benedictine monks, and the work of some philosophers, such as Plethon, whom brought esoteric thought back to the West. If there ever was a time when we may have come to accept the esoteric as part of our mainstream society, this was it. Even the Church had begun to consider accepting Hermetic or Neoplatonic texts as canon. However, as with many things, the Protestant Reformation and Thirty Years' War put a kibosh on all that. The Protestants, who detested any method of reaching the divine outside of a priest and, were, and who were so anti-magic they thought the Pope was a wizard, forced esoteric thought into the underground. Martin Luther! Is, is this episode just going to be a long string of you aggressively naming people in history you don't like? Yes. <laughs> okay, I can live with that. <laughs> The Esoteric Underground, Chapter 8, details how esoteric thought went into hiding yet again. Gone were the days of Greek lecturers waxing poetic about the nature of reality to adoring students, or traveling wise men who lectured to packed crowds. In its place, the secret schools, societies, mysteries, and cults that would come to embody what many first imagined when thinking of the occult or esoteric arose. 
chief among them being the mysterious Rosicrucians, or the Brotherhood of the Rosy Cross. From the shadows, these secret esotericists pushed for a better world, arguing for the development of a sense of universal brotherhood, and an attempt to embrace the full spectrum of what it meant to be human. Others, such as Paracelsus, I think that's right, Paracelsus, a hermetic physician who helped invent much of our modern medical practices, and arguably founded pharmacology, homeopathy, and modern wound surgery, did their best to add to the conversation without ending up burned by the church, and not everyone was successful at that. Yet, eventually, out of this darkness, the modern world was birthed. This is the Modern World, Chapter 9, details how esoteric thought adapted and survived into the 17th century, where thinkers such as Samuel Hartlib kept it alive via a loosely connected group of thinkers and esotericists known as the Secret College. A quick aside on that, I actually found out there is not, not, not a small amount of people online who think that Lachman is a member of the modern incarnation of the Secret College, and if that's true, I need to know where to send my application. <laughs> I want to go. I don't know if it's a real place, but is this just a place where I can go and learn? Uh, really, what the secret college was is it's this concept of a kind of a leaderless revolution in that we have thinkers all over the place in different colleges and operating under, under different environments that are all doing their best to keep esoteric thought alive and to write about it and to keep adding to the conversation but with no internal sort of a hierarchy so that you, the church can't come and just burn their leader. Uh, in, in this way, it was kind of almost like a, a life raft for the esoteric. Yeah. Um, in some ways, it kind of reminds me of the, the revival of Gnostic brotherhoods of it's like there is not a there is not a hierarchy. We are we are people of similar mindsets, mm -hmm. similar like the. We are we are esoterics along similar lines that are banding together to learn from and help each other, but we don't have a hierarchy. Neat. Right. And they might not even have a kind of unofficial wit means of even communicating, really. It can be something as simple as, hey, I know that there's this guy over across the ocean who is writing about esoteric. I'm going to just send him one of my books, even though we've never met. Okay. You know, it, it is... Kind of that super informal trading of ideas just to keep the thought alive, especially because if you look in the 17th century, I mean, that's the birth of science. That's right. the birth of rationalism. Uh, and I can imagine at the time it was it must have felt very important to maintain those sorts of things as the as the world was changing around them. That's really interesting. I'd be interested in going in just like reading papers from some of these people. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I I'm sure I wouldn't understand a goddamn word. But I would fucking try. You I mean, would eventually. Yeah. Like, the, the way you understand the stuff is, you know, bashing your skull into it until it breaks. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm doing. That's the, literally the exact same thing with Zen Buddhism, because like Zen Buddhism is all over this book, you guys, even if they don't always like name drop it like uh, Western esoterica and Zen Buddhism will have more in common than you think they will. <laughs> Write a book about it and we'll do it on the podcast. <laughs> I'm already writing so many books. <laughs> so it is here that Lachman details the specific esoteric contributions of well-known names, such as Isaac Newton, whose contributions to mathematics built much of the modern world, contributions which could not have been made if not for the insights he gleaned in his alchemical studies. It's also here that we meet one of my favorite mystics, uh, which I'm not going to go into too much because I want to do a biography on him, uh, named Emanuel Swedenborg, whose esoteric work led him on his own inner journey to the depths of heaven, hell, and himself. Uh, and 
again, as with Sir Rawardi, as with Dante, as with Emmanuel, once they complete that journey, what they find at the end is this sort of convex mirror that once they pass through, they realize contains the universe. And in this way, the mind contains the universe and the universe contains the mind. And these things are happening simultaneously. What if we're just what if during that we're just psychically traveling to the inside of the atoms that compose our own cells? It's fucked up, but I love it. Um, so which brings me to our our third discussion question. I found it personally very interesting how often esoteric thought directly led to breakthroughs in other in other non-esoteric fields. So do you guys think these thinkers do you guys think that these scientists genuinely gleaned truths from some sort of cosmic consciousness? Or does interest in the esoteric simply indicate their mind is open enough to journey beyond convention to discover something new? What do you guys think? Well, um, have you ever said, you know, like when you're sitting there and you're, you're deep in thought and... When I'm pooping? Well, not... Uh, yeah, sure, when you're pooping. But like, let's say... <laughs> it doesn't matter. Let's say you're deep in thought. And have you ever had that moment where you're like, oh, yes, like light bulb goes off, but it's completely unrelated to what you were thinking about? Yeah. Yeah. That's what I that's what I think is that's what I think effectively happens with some of these things like they're, you know, going through their their journey, uh, you know, through whatever it is, whatever they're trying to to reach gnosis, whatever. And through that journey, a light bulb goes off with something else or they see that connection randomly through the through their own thoughts, whether that I mean, what it probably is, I guess, I guess, in my opinion, is that they're tapping into that greater the greater consciousness and grabbing hold of something that is related, maybe even tangentially to something that they're doing. And that light bulb goes off and then they can go down that path as well. That's just kind of what I was thinking, because that's the easiest way that I could think to relate to it is like uh, when I'm deep in thought, sometimes I randomly will remember or have an idea towards like or I'll like I, I've had times where I'm writing like an article for a, a one of the ska bands and I think of four lines for a poem. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and they're completely unrelated, but they're both really good, you know. Right. Oh, and it's your brain is for, it could be that what you were looking at then spurned your subconscious to make a connection it couldn't before. Well, maybe it is because I'm at that at, in that moment. I'm in like that that mindset that my brain and my subconscious brain, whatever, are locked in and they're both working. They're just not necessarily working on the same thing. That's that's kind of what I think, too, because I, I I agree that it's probably more of the the esoteric studies can open your mind to new possibilities and help you travel down routes you wouldn't think of before because and i don't know how solid this theory is but there are some some meta thought some meta thought experts do theorize that and this probably builds into this 
into the whole split brain uh, hemispheres operating independently thing, there is a belief that your brain is always working on things when you're not consciously aware of them. And that that is where those Eureka light bulb moments come from is essentially you're working on something else completely different. Maybe it's a little bit more low pressure or something, whatever. And meanwhile, a different section of your brain that you're not consciously aware of is almost running background updates like it's your fucking laptop and yeah and sometimes it just is like okay so we finished that we got the four lines for the next poem okay send it up like so in in your mindset then in that framework i guess would you see those revelations as the a, a background process being completed within the self or would you see it as get receiving a software download I think I think both. for yeah okay. I think it's kind of both it depends on what it is right if you're if what you're you're currently opening your mind and working on your your path towards enlightenment whatever it might be and you have insight to something that you'd never thought of before software download yeah i mean which is actually here here's a bonus question uh have you guys ever had that like Lockman talks about I guess what intuiting knowledge would feel like where you're doing something and you've never been trained on it, but it just makes sense how to do it. Or you just know a fact, but you can't put in your brain how you learned that or where you learned it. Sure. So the question is, do you guys, can you guys think of any examples where that's happened to you? The ease with which I, as a very, very clumsy eight-year-old, learned how to roller skate was apparently quite spooky to my instructors. All right. I mean, I think I come across things that I do well naturally. Sure. Um, I think something that's eerie about me is, or I guess eerie, whatever, however you want to put it, uh, how well I click into a job. Yeah. Like yeah. I, I can, I can adapt to a job immediately and I become good at it. Um, you know? Uh, I never, I don't maintain the languages that I've learned. Um, for listeners on the podcast, I have attempted to learn sign language, American sign language, Spanish, and Arabic, and I have not maintained any of those languages, but while I am actively studying them, uh, my syntax is always incredibly incredibly good, even from the beginning, and uh, my accent is apparently when spoken languages like Spanish and Arabic, apparently I can just nail the accent in a way that native speakers are like, how did you do that? You're not supposed to be able to make that sound with your tongue if you grew up speaking English. I'm like, I don't know. I just did it like how you did it. When you, uh, I, I, I don't know why I remember this, but didn't you do a, like a video interview with somebody in Arabic and they were like super impressed with your dialect? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. I was thinking about it for myself. I don't I can't think of like a uh, hobby or an endeavor that ever really came that naturally. I mean, everything that I, I do, I feel like I, I earned it pretty hard through, through labor. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that said, I, I do think you know, I am a font of useless uh, tidbits of you're trivia. A, you're a sponge. Yeah, yeah. But here's yeah. the thing is like some of those things I don't actually know where I learned some of the weird little facts I know or where I read it or if I even read it. And it's entirely possible to me that maybe some of that is me picking up snippets of truth from this cosmic radio that's constantly going. Sure. Yeah, um, I can see there's, that. There's also theories like built into um, 
that stem out of, you know, reincarnation doctrines of the idea of even if you don't consciously remember your past lives, sometimes like like sometimes you do like I've like I've been told that a couple of times about just like, OK, may, you, you might have in a more recent life, you maybe spoke Arabic, things like that. Of Like you maybe that's true. You might just Rory, babe, you might just be really, really good at like subconsciously reaching back through those all those lifetimes and was like, when was the last time I did this job? Is it still fundamentally the same? OK, like. I don't want to know about my past life where I was a mortgage underwriter. <laughs> <laughs> You've been in that cubicle for lifetimes. Oh God, shoot me now! <laughs> On a thousand different planets, <laughs> uh, <laughs> underwriting loans for Gil Bob of the planet of the planet Lanulos. Oh, uh, I'm glad I don't work for that company. Hey, you uh, did you, little? Do you know you underwrote Andrew Cole's loan? But you um, know what? I, I I'm you know I hope he's got a good. I hope he has or had a good home on Lanulos. Then yeah, well, yeah. moment moment of silence for the dead injured cold. If Hellier's right, pour one out. But um, yeah. I don't so have a, I don't have a forty though. <laughs> I think I think I think esoteric like thought training might just be a really good endurance training for the brain, and just is really just really good fertilizer for all those neurons, and it just it just grows all these new shoots and branches in your brain that can do all this neat stuff. Well, I mean, well, and, that, uh, go ahead. And I, I think though, what's in, I mean, what you just said, those are very left brain way of conceptualizing the increase in consciousness of the idea of expanding one's consciousness. because what, what are you doing if you're forming new, new connections you're literally expanding the engine of your thought and if the and if our universe is the mind and our mind is the universe right we're in a constant additive state we're perpetually adding to the universe and changing it yeah interesting very interesting so chapter 10 <laughs> The Romantic Century. This chapter details the period leading up to the French Revolution and the surge in esoteric thought brought on by popular occultism, such as tarot or the mesmerism of Franz Anton Mesmer, whose ideas concerning animal magnetism, which was a sort of animating force of life, would inform much later esoteric thought and would be adopted along with esoteric Freemasonry and Swedenborg's ideas by the revolutionaries of the French Revolution. It is also here that we see esoteric thought reaching prominence in art and literature through the works of men such as William Blake and Samuel Taylor Coolridge, whose naturalist romantic works often express esoteric ideas in veiled symbolism. In total, we can see this period as an attempt to reject the increasingly mechanical, scientific view of the universe. In other words, the romantics were searching for meaning in the machine. The end of the Romantic century also brought us an extraordinary person and arguably the most important secret teacher of the modern age, Helena Petrovna Blavatsky, a foul-mouthed, chain-smoking, hard-drinking Russian philosopher who managed to fuse nearly every esoteric concept that came before her into a unified framework known as theosophy, and, in doing so, reintroduced many teachings from ancient thinkers that had been long lost to the West. And she scared the fuck out of every man she met. You know, every Russian secret teacher that they talked about seemed to be foul mouthed, like in some kind of crazy like that. Wouldn't you be if you had to be from Russia? <laughs> you know, that's fair. Uh, yeah, no, actually, I didn't think about this a lot, but this, it is true because uh, Gurdjieff, 
Yeah, yeah Gertchev yeah, yeah, yeah. was also uh and I will quick aside there, Gertchev, uh he was a more recent secret teacher, and he had this concept that humanity exists kind of in this sleeping machine state that most people don't actually have free will because they're asleep. They go through the motions of what was preordained for them. Uh, and we only really become hum- conscious humans when we break from that. Uh, and the whole reason you want to break from that is because our purpose here on this earth is to live and die so that our souls become food for the moon, which is trying to evolve into a planet. Uh, and I got to say, if among all the philosophical ideas we deal with in this book, if Gurdjieff is the one who's right, I'm going to go insane out of protest. I'm going to throw myself <laughs> off the fucking roof. I'm, like, I'm sorry. I'm just I'm going to throw myself I'm, off I'll, the roof. I'll with it. I'm going to throw myself at the moon. I'm not going out <laughs> like a bitch. I'm going out fighting. This is, this is why this is why our ancestors kept climbing up the fucking trees because they're like we gotta eat it first <laughs> you just call did you just call me a bitch i did oh bitch don't take it back <laughs> fine i take back both bitches <laughs> that's what my mom said when she picked me and my sister up from the police station <laughs> <laughs> so It is the consequences of Blavatsky's actions and death, which is the focus of chapter 11, toward the new age. Spurned on by Blavatsky's enormous contributions, esoteric thought went through a creative explosion, giving rise to a new class of theosophists who sought to understand the world by first understanding the objective reality within themselves. This period also saw the birth of the Society for Psychical Research, Aleister Crowley, and other figures well-known in modern occult pop culture. Most surprisingly, or not if you've read other stuff by Lachman, was Carl Jung, a closet esotericist who, late in his life, detailed his own idea of an inner world of archetypes which were, like us, constantly evolving and lived within their own objective reality. I thought he was interesting. Yeah, no, uh, Lachman uh, released a, uh, Lachman, one of Lachman's books is an esoteric biography of Carl Jung, oh. uh, and I, I desperately want to do it on this podcast just oh. Well, we'll have to because I'm very interested in that um, that person too. Due to my degree, I've actually known uh, Carl Jung as a uh, as like an esotericist and as a religious thinker much more than I know him as a psychologist because he is he is foundational to the modern academic studies of religion. Like his work with the universal unconscious and that idea that is that is religion 101. Yeah, I mean. Right. He's the one who brought us that. How many episodes have we? We've only done five episodes. I think we've mentioned the universal unconsciousness in what three or four of them. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It is a foundational idea to a lot of our modern understanding of the occult. Uh, It's just fascinating to me, especially because most people don't know about that part of his life. Uh, My fiance, Kelsey, she is was a psychology major. And when she saw me writing the notes for this, she was like, Carl Jung, like like the psychologist guy. He he couldn't be a wizard. Oh, (laughs) So, uh, and one more thing before I get to the next discussion question, I want to pause for a second on this idea of an inner objective reality, uh, because I feel like, I don't know, I feel like that word objective needs to be explored a little, because the impression I got when I was reading it was that this inner world, the it has things that live there. They exist there. They have their own free will. They have their own agendas, their own plans. And on these inward journeys, those figures, these people are interacting with exist in that imaginal world that um, that Sir Rewardy was talking about. Uh, did, did you guys get that feel? I mean, I, I thought that was pretty explicit. So I guess, do you mean like 
within my own like I, I, the only world that's coming to mind is dream, like my dreamscape and my when I'm in my Zen meditation and like that. Well, I mean, OK, so I want to break apart what you just said. That you said my dream state. I think the argument here is it's not my dream state. It's the it's the dream. Yeah, state. We, yeah, yeah, we yeah, all yeah. go to the same objective reality. It's been very right. similarly. Uh, a lot of the old Greek philosophers had this idea like or actually, I think one of the secret teachers, Steiner, what he said was when you think of a triangle. When I think of a triangle, when Jay thinks of a triangle, when Rory thinks of a triangle, we are thinking of the same triangle. This is not my triangle. This is not Jay's triangle. It is the same expression of the fundamental thought form of triangle. Right. Okay. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I can I I I can see that. Um and yeah, that was kind of my interpretation of like it is a different layer of or adjacent reality that we can step into via meditation yeah, yeah, yeah. and shit. But like there's yeah, yeah. other there's other things there that just live there all the time. It's almost like another plane of existence yeah. almost. And that's probably like where ghosts and shit come from, probably. So it's like Twilight. Yeah. Up from the World of Darkness games, yes. Yep. We're LARPers, guys. <laughs> uh, please don't please don't unfollow us. We're not LARPers that hit each other with swords. We're just we're just wannabe actors that use character sheets. You realize that's worse, right? No, it's not. It's, it's better. It is it's better. So, it's it is so, so much, much better. better. <laughs> it is so much better. So, which brings us to our fourth discussion question. By this point, Lachman has repeatedly impressed upon the reader how often esoteric thought was cleverly disguised in the left brain mental rational world through a practice called green language, being metaphoric words or images which can only be properly read by those with a strong enough grasp on esoteric knowledge to understand their meaning. For example, the Gothic churches, which dot all of Europe, were often filled with carvings and imagery of a distinctly Gnostic or esoteric nature. Even the buildings themselves, with their great spires reaching for the heavens, were meant to represent one's own inner quest to reach the Godhead. Do we see any signs of this green language alive today in our world? And are there any esoteric or occult symbols which have worked their way into our everyday? Um, so... The, the first thing that springs to mind for me with Rumi, which is with with green language is is Rumi, the the, Suf, the Sufi poet who is and that's that's not our modern world. He was from several centuries ago, but that is that is definitely green language because what Rumi wrote was love poetry, ecstatic poetry passionate enthralled love poetry that was not about a woman it was about god all of it was about god much like how the song of solomon uh, like the song of songs by king solomon seems like it's about how much the narrator really wants to plow this chick and it might actually just be about god interesting and um in terms of like Specifically, green language. I'm not. Nothing's really coming to mind. It, well, there was that movie with Jennifer Lawrence, uh, Mother, which was ostensibly a surrealist horror movie that, in many ways, was actually about the failure of humanity to caretake, um, to take care of the earth that was entrusted to them by God. Um, if you guys haven't seen Mother, it's basically about Jennifer Lawrence's character uh, lives in this isolated house cabin thing with her husband. Um, and as time goes on, these 
people start showing up in the house that her husband is telling her like no they're they're supposed to be there they're supposed they're supposed to be here it's fine i invited them they're supposed to be here and these people are wrecking everything they're just destroying everything and she's constantly going like they can't be here they're ruining my home what is going on and eventually she gives birth to a son who i believe is Uh, killed and cannibalized by these house guests and apparently the entire thing is just a protracted metaphor for the fact of like Jennifer Lawrence's character is supposed to be Gaia or possibly the feminine aspects of God and her murdered child is supposed to be Christ that was you know given to these humans that her husband God brought into her house quote unquote that started smashing things up and then her only begotten son was given to them for reasons she doesn't understand and they then proceed to kill him and eat him fascinating um so i mean i guess really taking that idea though like we're saying what if i mean because here's the problem green language the reason it was it was necessary was because talking about these things got you murdered okay that's a good point uh and so we don't have many I, uh, there aren't many topics in today, at least not that I'm aware of, that you can you can't talk with someone about or tweet about without getting shot. If there was, there'd be a lot more dead people in the world. Um, but that said, what is interesting there is oh, maybe not gr- green language, another word, maybe call it blue language, uh, where we we do see it in today's world in the sense that we use a lot of our fiction today to talk about very difficult to grasp ideas especially yeah. ones that in, invoke either existential terror or involve things that we don't really get i and the example that popped in my head when you were talking was hereditary yep. and, yes. and the reason yep. is is if you really if you really look at hereditary it's a trans narrative it is about yep. uh the experience of being trans and and kind of the body horror I, I guess it's not. I'm not saying obviously being trans is body horror. I'm saying well, it's about the body dysmorphia. Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah. It is about the idea of I will do anything to depart this inferior female body and attain my true masculine form. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. No, then that's that's what I. The only thing that I could think of too, like you guys have both said, was like art artistically is the only thing that I really see like any kind of green language in in today's world. Um that movie you and I watched uh Spontaneous yeah. that was mm-hmm. um if you, I honestly go go watch go watch Spontaneous. I can't really recommend Mother just for my own personal reasons but Spon- you hate J-Law. Yeah. Jennifer Lawrence. (laughs) But Spontaneous is ostensibly about a random normal high school in generic town USA. And for some reason, during just one year during the school year, the senior class starts exploding. (laughs) They start spontaneously exploding and showering their classmates in gore and blood and it's the entire movie is literally about them just going through the school year knowing that like every couple of days or maybe multiple times in one day sometimes if things are really bad their classmates just blow up and it's completely random who it is and all of the adults are completely helpless to stop them and it's this it is this gut wrench it starts out so like funny and kind of campy but it just gets so gut wrenching and devastating especially when like 
it's very obvious if you're actually engaging with the text. This is about school shootings. This is about. Oh, yeah, okay. it's yep. a yeah. And, it's like the new Bo Burnham special. It just hits you right in the balls. Yes, I, I was I've never laughed so hard while weeping. Oh. Yep. <laughs> yeah. yep. So I guess. So what's interesting here, though, is that I, I guess the the answer here is that we've outgrown the need for green language. Yes. And don't get me wrong. I've seen it. I've seen green language, but not modern green language. What I mean by that is I've gone to old churches where I've seen, look, they have a green right. man face. Edged yes. That is a pagan idol on yep. that church. And I've seen things like that. But I think probably in the modern day, as the occult has become consumerized, a lot of those images are now fashion accessories. I, I can't count how many people I've seen in the mall wearing an Egyptian ankh around their around their uh, neck. Or non-Egyptian people with onks tattooed on them. Yeah, I actually. Uh, so back when I was at Central Michigan University, I took a couple classes with Dr. Ari Burke, uh, who's a folklorist, and he's amazing. But, he's incredible. He has books. Go get them. But yeah, oh god, I, we, I, I've actually read one. We're gonna have to cover some yeah. of his books on this. Yes. Um. Oh, hey, yeah, that's actually a great but idea. Anyway, uh, he was he, he went on a tirade one day because he was on Hot Topic and he saw they were selling a pair of panties with pixies on it. And if you don't know what the origin of the pixie folklore is, is they're the souls of aborted babies. So this is a pair of panties with the souls of aborted babies on it. And he just couldn't. Uh, and, and so, but that's the thing is a lot of these, either a lot of these images have either in the modern day become so commonplace, we don't think about them or they've completely lost all of their original meaning. Like the, like the, like the caduceus staff. Like that was what I thought of when you were talking about any occult symbols that have kind of just made it into our into our mainstream lexicon. The the, the Caduceus staff of Hermes with the uh, the long pole with oh, yeah. the snake yep. and the two wings at the top. Yeah, that's our universal symbol of medicine, and it's like yep. that is that is a tool of the messenger god. Like that is. I mean, you could even argue that Baphomet, the, the Baphomet's head and the, the pentagram is becoming that now. I have a fucking well, Baphomet sewed onto one of my jackets and it's like, I'm not I'm not a member of the satanic temple. Well, I'm not it, even really a Satanist. And you're but... not a Templar. Yeah. And, well, and, and also that that's same... the fifth. <laughs> <laughs> that same jacket has uh, pentacles on each button. And so yeah. I, I think the pentacle is probably one of the ones out there that, that that's yeah. the, been the that's lost the most meaning. It's it's almost now just a stand in for any kind of occultism, especially if you look at like a lot of campy horror ah, throw a bloody pentacle on the ground. Everyone will know it means Satan. Yeah. Like, yeah, th throw a pentagram down there and call them Satanists. <laughs> they'll be fine. <laughs> uh, OK, well, that was good. Uh, so now let's get into our final couple chapters here. The final chapter, the next steps beyond gets speculative. Here, Lockman goes over the history of the 1960s occult revival, the esoteric rock and roll of the Rolling Stones, which he cheekily calls rock cult and roll, <laughs> which I loved, uh, to the psychedelic revolution, which promised to open up untold vistas of our inner worlds. Eventually, this comes back to the ideas of Gene Gebser and the concept of a mental rational consciousness structure, which Gebser argues is in the process of dying a slow and brutal death. As we seek deeper meaning from our world than a purely mechanical view, and as our old laws of science fail to grapple with the newly discovered quantum realities, we find ourselves returning to the old mysteries for inspiration, giving rise to an endless number of New Age shops, books, seminars on self-actualization, crystals, tarot, and a thousand other ways to achieve enlightenment for a low, low fee. 
This, coupled with the proliferation of previously difficult-to-obtain esoteric texts via the internet, it seems that the right-brain, esoteric mode of thought is poised to make a comeback. While some may desire this, Lachman does an excellent job of also showing why that may not be as sunny an outcome as we presume, and that this rebellion may also be fueling the flight from reason we are seeing among certain crowds who I won't name with their alternative facts and general distrust of science. Rather than cast Trump. the... <laughs> <laughs> Rather than cast out the left brain scientific worldview, Lachman argues that the path forward must be somewhere in the middle. It is by joining the left analytical worldview to the right symbolic worldview that we move forward into the next phase of human consciousness, a creative explosion in which the two unify to create something greater than its constituent parts. In other words, we must learn to see both the forest and the trees. So that brings us to our last uh, discussion question. I do have a little bit here about Gary Lachlan, but as it turns out, there is uh, not a lot that can be found about his like personal life uh, through you know, half an hour of Googling. And I didn't want to <laughs> I didn't want to stalk the man because he's a member of the secret college and also a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> and, and you know what? Maybe maybe if he he listens to this episode, which I'm hoping he will. He will be down for an interview. Maybe. I mean, yeah. So that, that is pretty much the only thing I found, by the way. He uh, was a science writer for UCLA, and he was a founding member of the pop group Blondie. Uh, he paid, played bass for them, after, and he departed after about two years, pursued a solo career, uh, had some success there, but nothing too major. And then later, he played guitar for Iggy Pop for a bit. Oh. Yeah. Uh, and eventually- uh, he, Iggy Pop solo or the Stooges? Solo, I believe. Okay. Uh, and, and, and later he did was part of Blondie during their 1996-1997 reunion. Uh, and in 2006, he, along with the other founding members, was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which is, is cool. I mean, he's a rock star occultist, which is an amazing business card. Uh, I, I wonder if Peter B. talks about Lachman in uh, his his book. I, I doubt it, but maybe. Because I mean, I'm fairly sure uh, we're talking about uh, Peter... <laughs> Peter B. P Peter Biebergall, who you might remember from episode three, uh, we're talking about his other book, Season of the Witch, which is about how the occult interfaced with rock and roll through the 1969 rock cult and roll. And we'll get to that eventually. Well, I mean, he, he might cite Gary Lockman or something. That, that's true. He might. I, I don't know. Uh, so I want them to be friends. <laughs> They might be. We don't know. I want them to be enemies, and that's just to be contrary to you. I want them. <laughs> look, I want them to have secret wizard wars in the back look, in the back streets way, of London. Either way, they're going to make out. So, <laughs> just for the sake of it, I want them to have never met. Well, and this that is one's why the you come fun. to this podcast for three <laughs> diametrically opposing views that we make up not because we believe in them, but because we want to piss the other two off. So, our fifth discussion question. <laughs> it worked. He's mad. <laughs> our last question is our most simple. Do you think he's right? Are we on the verge of a shift in consciousness? And where do you see evidence for that belief, if any? And most importantly, do you believe this book has shifted your own understanding of yourselves in any way? I'll start. Um, I, I, I do think that we are on the verge of a shift of consciousness. And the reason is because there's a lot to me, there's a lot of evidence of it out in the world. Uh, even if we want to talk about the greater phenomenon, mm -hmm. right? Uh, with Capital us, P. yep, with us moving more and more towards disclosure with UFOs and things like that, that's gonna ha that's going to open up the mind of more people. So, therefore, the greater consciousness is going to get unlocked in some people. That's just gonna happen, mm -hmm. right? Um, 
more and more people are interested in the phenomenon in UFOs, in greater consciousness in general. You see that by the rise in podcasts like ours and just by the sheer number of people that are on these subreddits um, and other forums that probably exist. Well, I mean, right now, one of the biggest podcasts in the world talks about esoteric and cryptids and and ufos and monsters uh talking about last pod yeah among yeah. also true crime but yeah yeah and um so i absolutely so, like i absolutely believe that we are on a shift to to that um 100 and do i believe that did, did this book shift my own understanding um yes and no Yes, in a way that it gave me a deeper understanding of things that I was already looking into. Uh, like it gave me a, a really cool synopsis of the Gnostic uh, history, which goes uh, hand in hand with I'm actually reading the Nag Hammadi right now, like on the side. Oh, um, because I've been I'm working on a side project that will come up one day. Uh, that involves the Nag Hammadi as well as other uh, religious texts. Um, but so like that was cool getting like the history of the Gnostics in uh, relation to esoteric thought. Um, but like ultimately it didn't like make me think of the like the, the overall co like human consciousness and greater consciousness any different than I already do because in ways there was similarities to what I think to what some of the secret teachers were preaching or mm. preaching teaching anyway you know not all of them obviously because I don't like Aristotle I mean I don't think Aristotle would classify as a secret teacher he was more the the mascot of the left brain he was saying, no, all that's nonsense. You need only physical observable laws. Fair, fair. I was just, I just wanted to plug in there that I don't like Aristotle. I mean, that's fair. I mean, uh, he is the reason that our viewers are listening to Modern technology, theoretically, yeah, wouldn't okay, happen that, without him. But fair. That's it. It's okay to dislike someone, but like the things they do. Yeah, that's yeah. true. But yeah, no, ultimately, I don't I don't think that it necessarily shifted my own understanding. But what it did do is make me think about it from a deeper perspective, if that makes sense. Like, I, I, I definitely looked inward a lot more while I was reading the book. Does that make sense? Yeah, which I mean, I think is a is as glowing of a review as any book on the esoteric should get. You know, if it made you uh, just take a moment to look inward, it did what it's supposed to. Right. What about you, Jay? Um. Yes, I believe we are on the shift of a verge uh, uh, on on the verge of a shift in how our brains work. Just because, um, the internet has destroyed us inside and out. Um, and I and I I like to think that from the shattered pieces of our psyche left from the boot of Instagram, <laughs> <laughs> there will grow a new, more global consciousness just because for the first time ever, for the first time ever, you could pick up your phone and Google human rights violations in China and find out what is being done to your cousins, your fellow humans in China and go, oh, Somebody needs to fucking put a stop to that. And <laughs> that I think that's a powerful tool. And I think that like we're under a lot of strain 
from that sort of knowledge, we we get a lot of compassion fatigue. Like compassion mm-hmm. fatigue is literally a fucking pandemic in the Western world right now because of it. And it's actually part of the reason why a bunch of us are turning into complete bastards is because we're actually just completely burnt out by the fact of like every fucking day there's a new massacre in sub-Saharan Africa every day. And it's... And yet nobody pays attention to the rhinos. I know, baby. You I'm do. so sorry. You pay I attention do. to the rhinos. I do pay you attention to the rhinos. You speak for the rhinos like some sort of horned lorax. <laughs> I'm not sure I like the comparison to the lorax, but <laughs> I am the lorax. I speak for the rhinos. <laughs> and you, you shoot a poacher with an elephant gun. But um, yeah, and I, but I think that I think that maybe like because you know the the the. The fucker whose name I can't remember who climbed the goddamn mountain and was like, oh, holy God. shit, there's a thing up here. Yeah, uh. I'm trying. I Here's the thing. You know, funny thing is I actually had his name here in the summary. I had a whole bit about that. But then I was like, I don't want to make people listen to an hour and a half of me talking. So I ended up cutting that. And now I can't remember his name. Whatever. There, there was a dude in I think he was Italy? in chapter seven. Yeah, there was a dude in Italy whose name I believe started with a P. And he climbed, he was like, he climbed a mountain and was like, hey, guys, did did you know that if you climb a mountain, you can see a bunch of shit? And they're like, why would you do that? He's like, to see a bunch of shit. And like is at it, the time. Is this the guy who's like dad or something tried to climb the mountain too and failed? Yeah, yeah there was uh, the old man. It was Petrarch. 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 P-E-T-R-A-R-C-H. And he count, he climbed Mount Vento, which is V-E-N-T-O-U-X. Uh, yeah. And I did not pronounce either of those correctly, but yeah. So he, <laughs> now you can Google it. He it's climbed, probably He climbed Mount Vento, and in Lockman's interpretation, this was this signaled a shift in consciousness that kind of allowed humans to start developing curiosity for its own sake. Well, because he didn't have a reason to climb it. He yeah. just he went up for the view, which exactly, which was new back yeah. then, apparently, and. Well, because nobody had saw nature in the way to just see nature. Yeah, it was something you had to, you know, pull survival out of, not something that could be appreciated for what it is. Yeah, right. And so what I was what I was driving at is like that kind of broke his brain a little bit. And it kind of wasn't it was kind of weird, everyone around him. And so to tie it back into what I was saying, I'm hoping that our shift in consciousness will be to something that is on a more global scale and we might be able to have more broad reaching compassion and understanding of like I've talked I've talked I've talked about this before of and to tie it into the what Rory was saying about disclosure and the possible coming confirmation of extraterrestrial life that is in, irrevocably entwined with ours the the idea of we might be on the verge of a consciousness uh, shift from nationality to like planet based of like I am a Terran first I am an earthling first and I have more in common with those across the sea than I do with those that come from the stars and that means something that's how we get first contact I mean I I I really hope so um I will so just kind of building off that I mean obviously I agree with the points you both have made uh, and I'll bring it back to aliens because you just did that for me. Uh, <laughs> I've been listening to I've been working my way through Exo Academia's Point of Convergence podcast, which small uh, free plug for them. Great podcast. It's like being it's like having your own pocket professor on the UFO phenomenon. It's great. Woo! So but the point is, uh, recently, one of the episodes I was listening to there, he's been talking about how a lot of uh, UFO experiencers 
when they've when they've actually done hypno regression, they've and they've looked back in their experiences. There are these messages coming in uh, from, you know, these visitors among things like we are all one. It is all consciousness. You know, the things we've been discussing for five freaking episodes now. Um, but the, the point being, one of the things they talk about is that we are on the verge of some kind of change of consciousness. And it, it's funny just thinking about that because if we look at the book here, uh, that has been said by the secret teachers going back hundreds of years. We've had this coming for a long, long time. But then it does seem like things are mm. picking up. Like we we were seeing more and more rapid changes in our society, especially with the rise of social media and things like that. Um, and I have a quote here from Young about it, which I, I really enjoyed. It's a bit long, but bear with me. Uh, he said, my conscience as a psychiatrist bids me to fulfill my duty and prepare those few who will hear me for coming events which are in accord with the end of an era. As we know from ancient Egyptian history, there are symptoms of psychic changes that always appear at the end of one platonic month and at the beginning of another. They are changes in the constellations of the psychic dominance, the archetypes or gods as they used to be called. The transformation started in the transition of the age of Taurus to that of Aries, and then from Aries to Pisces, whose, beginning, whose beginnings coincide with the rise of Christianity. We are now entering that great change when the sprint point enters Aquarius. So, you know, that, you know, that song, the age of Aquarius, that's what it's about. It's about this idea of this coming global consciousness. And personally, I hope it happens. I, we, we need to get, we need to get our shit together, guys. Oh yeah, absolutely. Especially because, I mean, if you really, if you really, again, it's kind of like, you know, we're having house guests over. We can't have the place be a mess. If we have aliens coming, I don't want them to look down and see us at war with each other or letting uh, half the world starve so Jeff Bezos can own 10,000 cars. <sighs> Bezos? <laughs> and go to space for no fucking reason. I wish Jeff Bezos a very die in space. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's just Jay, though. Yeah, no, uh... <laughs> <laughs> don't cancel my amazon prime i rely on it to survive i'm not canceling my fucking amazon prime we can hate someone and be like nah give me that shit i mean here's give the me thing. all that is, tech aristotle but it, also get the fuck out of my house it is true that there is a point where certain uh companies or services are so pervasive that it's almost impossible to operate in the modern world and not use them Disney. <laughs> Did you know that YouTube actually has a greater uh monopoly on what they do than what on than what amazon has on what they do there are viable alternatives to Amazon, but for individual video-based content creation, there is not a viable alternative to YouTube because YouTube has systematically and coldly destroyed every single one that has arose. TikTok's trying. <sighs> TikTok will fail. I don't it'll know. get bought. I don't. It'll. 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 Well, it's already that already happened. You know, maybe oh. TikTok won't fail. I miss you, Vine. Yeah, I was going to say TikTok is just the new vibe. Okay, we have drifted. Uh, Sorry. So, I, I, again, like, I don't know if there's going to be a change of consciousness coming. I do think there is something to be said about, though, that we, it's not something we can wait for. Uh, and I know that the three of us here and the, hopefully our listeners at home, uh, you know, this is a process that we're all engaging with right now by engaging in this material, by, thinking about these old ideas and these philosophical concepts of what it means to be human, what is the nature of reality. And I think there is too large a temptation in the modern world uh, to disregard anything that you don't see that you can't you can't purchase or you can't uh, touch. And I, I feel like that's a mistake. And especially because if you really look back, 
every generation was fairly confident they had it all figured out and they have all been wrong. So I got to ask, why the hell would we think we're the exception to that? Right. No, you're, you're right. So uh, that's I, I think that I think the bottom line is that we all need to continue to not we like you said, we can't think that we're right. We have to continue to grow. We have to continue to seek the truth in one form or another, be it seeking enlightenment in our own way, finding our own path, whatever it might be. But we have to continue to grow and show compassion for everybody around us, because ultimately we are all one people, regardless of where we live, regardless of who, like where, how we were born, what our gender identity is, whatever it is, we're all one people. And if you honest to God, like at this point, if you think that we're alone in the universe, you're a moron. Like, I'm sorry. I, it's just how I feel about it. Like statistically, mathematically, logically everything says that we're not alone and we have to be prepared for that reality i'd add one more thing i think intuitively i think it's something i mean it's ever since i was a little kid i have had that thought in my head like yeah no there are there are definitely other species out there and now and yes that might have come from cartoons with aliens that i ingested as a small child that lodged something in my brain but it never felt like that. You know, it, it, right. it felt more like a self-evident truth that just, of course, that's the case. The sky is also blue. These are these are the same kind of level of fact in my brain. Yeah. Um, And they, it always has been. And uh, I don't know. I, it's I think that and I think that probably understanding ourselves as a global community is the first step in a wondrous series of steps to take us out of our current uh, situation and into a whole new world. And, and not, it's not to say we're one step away from being done. I don't believe we're ever done. I don't believe. No, I think it, yeah. if you stop growing and you stop evolving, you're dead. It, yeah. The, the yeah. life is evolution. Yeah. We can never we can never grow stagnant. Yep. On something like that. And I think probably the next step after we are a global society is we are a cosmic society that right. I understand that, hey, this uh, gray alien here who's ripping a bong on the couch he is the same as me on a fundamental level. He is an experience of consciousness or he is experiencing right. consciousness. Um, and, and probably after that, we're going to have to move from uh, like into acceptance of species that are not matter based species that live completely psychically or species that originate from the other side of black holes. Right. <laughs> non- oh, God, we're going to give the Looking non-people at- rights. Yes. <clears throat> I was just say, look at interdimensional, like non like the non-people. Potentially. Yeah. yeah. And John Keels. Um, well, and also in theory, this also will apply to other forms of life on Earth. We have to begin to understand our impact on them if they are also an experiencer of consciousness. And I'm not just talking about things like elephant, uh, elephants and dolphins and things that we well, that some countries consider non-people people. I, I'm talking about we have to have a reckoning with ourselves of how we treat the living world around us. Right. And I, obviously, we can't get away from some cruelty. We, we just can't because. You know, we are by evolution. We have canines. We eat meat. We, uh, you know, we need to survive. We we like having homes, but we need to find a way to do it in ways that minimize suffering. And we, we do not do that. We maximize suffering. Right. Um, and I, that might just be a, me being a bit of a utopian here, but I, I really do think that is going to be an important step along the way. No, I agree. I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. I mean, I think we'll get there. Like we did eventually reach the big pretty thing in the sky. Yeah. Uh, so, okay. Uh, I think that's it for today. I think that's our episode. 
Uh, just what it looks like. Okay. Uh, so great conversation, guys. I hope everyone at home enjoyed it. Uh, and I hope you're going to enjoy episode six because we're taking a step way out of my comfort zone as Jay is going to lead us on our first little voyage into true crime with Elliot Ness and the Mad Butcher. From the glittering heights of human psychic potential to just about the most base and bloody human instincts we can we can indulge in. I, I will say, uh, kind of a little precursor, it has uh, proven to me what I've always known, which is I shouldn't engage in true crime because it radicalizes me and fills me with rage. Rage! What do you think I use it for, Nick? <laughs> I think you're addicted to anger and you need to work on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so that's our show. Everyone uh, stay safe out there. And- hey, don't forget the housekeeping items. Oh, God. I think I just did it. No, we got to talk about. Oh, so uh, if you have if you want to email us about anything that we got wrong, anything that you loved about the show, anything that you want to. Uh, that you want to talk about or you want us to talk about on the show, you can go ahead and email us at noctivigantpodcast at gmail.com. And if you want to interact with us in between episodes, you can always interact with us on Twitter. The show itself has its own Twitter at noctivigantpod. Uh, it's at noctivigantpod. Or you can interact with me. I'm at mixrorywicks. I am at Midwest Undead. And I am at Bearish Terror. Uh, otherwise, now you can wrap up the episode. Well, thank you for your permission. You're welcome. That's all, folks. Stay safe out there. Yay! Look, all I'm saying is if the moon wants to eat me, she can come down here and do it her damn self.